I'm Grant. Uh, before we get started, as always, the plugs. Uh, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Atypical Rainbow. Check out our old episodes. There's a whole season's worth there on acast.com. Just search for The Atypical Rainbow. And please share and comment and do all the things that, you know, bring a bit more attention to this little part of the world that we've tried to create. So, down to business. Today's topic uh, is atypical philosophy. Uh, we're going to talk about medical discrimination, which is a fairly broad heading, but um, anyone who has actually followed or looks at our uh, Facebook posts um, may recall that I recently posted up something about a situation I was in with a group of um, medical colleagues. We were talking, for as a little bit of background for those who haven't read it, um, we were talking about a patient, a male patient who uh, was presenting with some bowel issues. And it came up uh, from, unsurprisingly, two white older gentlemen that uh, they started asking, well, you know, how, when was this person's last HIV test? And I went, they've been in a long term relationship for 17 years. Why were they in an HIV test? They're like, they're gay. And I went, that's not a good reason to do it, right? But unfortunately, um, the Australian STI guidelines, to some degree, supports that their theory because, as it currently states, it is recommended for um, gay men who are at, who are uh, undertaking sexually risky behaviour to have STI checks every three months. But it explicitly states that men in monogamous relationships should at least have an annual checkup. Now that's rubbish, right? <laughs> because that question implies that because the patient is gay, they're more likely to be promiscuous, right? And that, that is offensive, particularly someone who has been in a monogamous relationship, you know, since 2008. Well, not, not necessarily promiscuous as unfaithful. Yes. Yeah. And that, that's still not great. And don't get me wrong. I don't know, I'm saying that's probably worse. Yeah. (laughs) HIV can manifest later on, but not by that much. And even then it should be contextual. It shouldn't just be, you are gay, therefore you must have gone and slept around and therefore you should have an HIV test. Like I certainly didn't do that. Like I I never went through that whole experience. I very much didn't do that. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, so clinically speaking, I have no reason to go get an annual HIV test. It doesn't make any sense to me. But the guidelines say so, and old-fashioned belief says so. I, I even had one colleague who was not a older white male suggest that this patient should go on PrEP, which is the, the preventative uh, HIV treatment as prevention. And I went, again, guys, this person has been in a long-term relationship. Why? Like, what are you doing this for? And... It just really riled me up because it inherently shows uh, an ignorance about the nature of queer relationships and assumes something about queer relationships, which is, I mean, not only is it completely unjust, it actually clinically doesn't make any sense. Like, it, it, you know, on a, on a purely medical level, and I'm obviously taking a very autistic perspective on this, but on a medical level, it, it doesn't make any sense. You, you make your choices based on the information you're given, but you need to ask more questions. You don't just have someone come in with a cough and go, oh, you must have pneumonia. Here, have some antibiotics. Like, that, we are very much working our way out of that kind of philosophy, and yet there are still some areas where people clearly show ignorance, and it's frustrating because there was definitely this sense of, it's not entitlement per se, but this sort of self-righteousness, like, but why wouldn't we? Of course we would do this. He's gay. And I'm like, that, 
isn't actually logical in any way. You've just fixed yourself on this arcane belief and you haven't actually done any work, which is even worse. Like, not only does it make you not a particularly considerate person, it actually just makes you a crap doctor. Uh, that so I just yeah it drove me absolutely insane when I heard it and it's actually the opposite to what my actual interaction was with a doctor when I tried to get a STI test mm. and they're like yeah you don't really need one because <laughs> mm. you're not really doing anything that requires an STI test what and what f- from memory what what was the demographics of your doctor were they younger were they older like I, I wouldn't say he was overly old like it was it was a man. Who knows, it may have been a gay man. You don't know. You yeah, know, you don't know. know. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, like, I was... In, it was about 10 years ago, so, you know, I was in my early 20s. Mm. And he was probably, I don't know, in his 30s, maybe 40s, I don't know. And look, there is the hope that, you know... He was Asian, so he could have been 80 for all I knew. <laughs> <laughs> Yellow don't mellow and all that. Yeah. Um, look, there is this assumption that the younger generations will know better just through experience and through growing up in a different kind of culture. And that's certainly the hope. You know, I, uh, I recently taught a class in, on, a, on Zoom and, um, you know, if anyone knows Zoom well, you, you put your little name in the, in the box and someone had in brackets, he slash him. And I went, that's really progressive. Like, good on you, you know? And so it's, the hope is that's the case. But the problem is, can we afford to weed, wait and weed out these ignorant typically older doctors, in the meantime, making it a negative experience for queer people. Uh, And although um, my time at the transgender clinic is is about to end, I have learnt about how difficult it can be for someone who is trans to go seek a local doctor because you just don't know what kind of reaction you're going to get. You know, there's there's often a lot of a lot of issues around the over medicalization of a person's trans identity. So the the question of oh, you've presented with a cough, let's talk about your gender. When again, they have nothing to do with one another. But this is this kind of fear that trans community experiences, and and it leads to um, reduced medical presentations and a reduced likelihood that in the event that they need medical attention, they'll actually go, which is sad and mm. completely undeserved. Yeah, and I think the problem with these sorts of situations also is that it makes uh, trans or gay people a bit more defensive when the questions are actually relevant. Yes. Uh, Like, I know it's not a medical example, but I heard of an example where someone wanted to do something at the bank and they needed to produce their birth certificate. And because they were trans, the entire idea of producing a birth certificate was very Triggering. triggering. Yeah, absolutely. Even though it was the completely normal thing, no matter if you're trans or not... I guess if you're so used to these sorts of aggressions or microaggressions, mm. then sometimes you react to the wrong things. Whereas if you can go through your life not being discriminated against, then you can just go, oh, yeah, this is fine. I'll produce my birth certificate for this because I need to. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of those examples and the bank thing as well, where the environment is just as important as the individual. So making it the individual's responsibility, the queer person or trans person to toughen up or learn to do better is not fair and it's not reasonable. It's up to all of us to be able to adapt and to recognize and to sort of, you know, 
be more nuanced about how we approach things to make these adjustments. So, for example, uh, interestingly, the medical software uh, that, that we use, um, the, uh, the organization I work for had to campaign to include um, the they, them pronoun as an option. Okay. So it used to be that you well actually no sorry I didn't take that back to have to include pronouns at all was it was a distinctive thing so you know because you wouldn't necessarily need it there's an assumption if you if your gender is listed as male on your oh okay yeah, yeah. Birth, then the the program the software would default that any letter that required a, a gendered pronoun would put in the the equivalent pronoun whereas now but whereas um yeah the organisation lobbied to have that change and it, it's there and it, and these seem minor. But they're actually really important. It's, it's, it shows respect. You know, language is important. We all know that saying the wrong thing or saying it in the wrong way makes a difference. And so, you know, to the people who are, are outsiders who are like, oh, why would we bother? That seems like nothing. It's because it seems like nothing to you because you haven't experienced it. Because you don't yeah. know why or, language matters. You know, you misgendering someone one time to you is misgendering someone one time. But to them, it might be the 10th or 20th time they've been misgendered that day. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. It, you got to put yourself in other people's shoes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, look, I, I thankfully have never been um, the victim of any sort of medical discrimination. The, whenever I've had medical issues, I've, I've always been uh, approached very neutrally and very clinically, which I really appreciated. But at the same time, though, I do often start a conversation with, by the way, I'm a doctor. So <laughs> they kind of they, they kind of come at it with an understanding that I at least have some knowledge of what I'm saying has some basis. So maybe I've kind of avoided all of that by just being able to sort of put my experience up front. I do remember seeing, like, on the screen of my GP, like, like when my file was up, like, under problems it says has twins. <laughs> I always thought that was interesting. <laughs> like, I guess it's important information yep. when assessing how very tired or <laughs> depressed I am. But it, it kind of seemed a bit sad to label the twins as problem I have. <laughs> that it's possible I that come down with a case of twins. <laughs> Um, it's entirely possible that's going to change the comments, but yes, I think you're right. The context, so yeah, look, um, you're, you're, but I guess if it said gay in under my problems, yeah, then I okay. might have reacted less laughing, <laughs> <laughs> a bit more offended. Yes, indeed. Well, that's the thing, right? So there is, um, there is the balance between recognizing the importance of someone's gender or sexual identity mm-hmm. um, up, up against kind of health things. Because we do know that people um, who are uh, LGBTQIA plus are at a higher risk of mental health disorders, mm-hmm. usually because of the effect of the other people around them. Yeah. Um, there's a higher rate of autism in the trans community. No, oh, actually, sorry, let me even expand a little bit further. There's a higher rate of neurodiversity um, in the trans community, so that includes autism, ADD, dyspraxia, and dyslexia. Uh, okay. So the, I knew about ASD. I didn't know about the others. Yeah, no one knows why. Like, there's just there's no there's no direct uh, causational uh, reason, but it is there is a lot of it in the trans community. So on a clinical level, there is some relevance. But it could be that way around. What do you mean? I don't know. ASD people might be more likely to accept the fact they're trans. Maybe. Or are they more likely to experience, um, you know, confusion and anxiety and depression as a result of it because they don't necessarily understand their internal processes? Mm-hmm. So I, I know there was a point where Matt was had very sort of 
like, in, I, I use the word interesting. People might think that's a negative term, but I actually mean literally interesting. Mm. Views around gender when he was around four or five. Mm. He kind of had rejected gender norms. Mm. Like, he didn't see the sense of gender norms. Yeah. So, I do wonder whether people who are trans and have ASD might be more likely to actually act on the fact they're trans. I mean, that that certainly would make a lot of sense. And I think, you know, with um, ASD in general, there can be that sense of feeling alien or feeling outside. But if you are taught that's a way to be, if you learn to accept yourself and love yourself for being outside, then that can be a really positive thing. So, it uh, you know, it might be just about how you use that information, how you process it. Whereas, for most people, if they're taught that being on the outside or being different is inherently bad, then that can turn into a self-loathing, low self-esteem, and then again lead to depression and anxiety. Yeah, and I think from raising trans kids, one of the things I have noticed is that sometimes they will challenge something that we all take for granted, and there's really no way to explain it. Yes. Like, they're right. They're just like, it doesn't actually make sense. Could you... I, I agree with you, but could you give an example? Like, the idea of basically saying, oh, I had a heart attack when I couldn't find you. It's like, did you literally have a heart attack? Like, why would you... Like, why didn't you call an ambulance if you literally had a heart attack? See, that feels more ASD than it does <laughs> trans. Um, and then another one with Matt was trying to explain humility. Mm. Like, it's almost like... I was trying to explain it to him. He's like, so I lie about how good I am? <laughs> and I'm like... Let's just drop this. (laughs) So that's probably a better example. The idea of, yeah, we all go around lying about... If if we actually think we're good, we lie and claim that we're not good. Yep. And that's how we're polite. Yep. That doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it doesn't. Uh, I think that... Look, inherently assumes that other people will be hurt or offended by, uh, by us being superior... In, in, you know, whatever aspect we're proud of, of doing, you know? But, I mean, we do a lot of that. Like, I think at one point you were telling me how please doesn't really make any sense because it presumes impoliteness. Yeah. But the entire... Yeah, all language is assumed to be impolite unless you prove that it's polite. Yeah. Like, we, why did we decide that? <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, we still we still teach it. It, yeah. it, never, it never goes away. But still, it, yeah, it, it is kind of this weird nuanced thing that in a way, kind of makes sense, but then why? Like, why can't we just change the way we receive language rather than having to change the way we communicate language? Yeah, why can't we just all assume it's polite unless you throw a swear word in the middle of it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And even then, you know, hanging around enough bogans, I'm used to swearing being quite affectionate. Like, we will just throw the F-bomb and the S-bomb, and it's not in any way vicious or angry. Yeah. It's just part of the vernacular. It's like putting in a comma. <laughs> like, it's just... It's just there, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I enjoy. I enjoy it sometimes. Yeah. I, yeah. So it. It's. I think once again, it's this sort of protective mechanism. We teach ourselves and we teach our children these things, so that in the event that maybe someone might be offended, rather than kind of encouraging everyone else around to. Yeah, but I think, I think with certain things like the use of please, there's a good chance other people will be offended. <laughs> yeah. It's it's so widely used in English that. But is you that- can't change it. But is that also because we are so ingrained with it that we're just self-perpetuating the problem? Well, yeah, I guess we kind of are. Like, each generation has to teach their children to do it because there's so many generations who have been taught to do it. Yeah. That they're going to interact with people who have been taught to do it. Hmm. 
But anyway, we've, we've veered way off topic. I do love talking about language. I wish I'd done English language at school. But I guess the point here is that, yeah, look, medical discrimination is out there. And it is up to, to the clinician to be able to adapt and adjust and recognize the importance of language and understanding and, and concept. And so, yes, is it is it medically valuable to know a person's uh, gender identity? Is it important to know their sexuality? Yes, to some degree. Does it relate to everything? No. Yeah, it's important to know these things, but not make wild, crazy assumptions based on them. Yes. Like, I, I refer to it as the idea of, like, airborne AIDS that just gets attracted to gay people. Like, that's not how AIDS works. No. Um, and weirdly, we were recently watching a TV show where I felt like there was like there was a committed gay couple and they caught AIDS after like 30 years with no explanation. And like maybe we were meant to assume that they were being unfaithful, at least one of them was being unfaithful. But it wasn't really explained in any way why these people would suddenly catch AIDS at, at a point where AIDS was only just starting to spread. So these wouldn't be people who had AIDS 30 years ago before this, because this was set in the 80s, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas you weren't as offended by that. So maybe I'm a bit sensitive to the idea. Well, I, look, I understand. And look, we're going to we're gonna break that down in another episode. So Grant's We've only watched one episode of it. Yeah. Sorry. Well, it's, so it's, um, it's the show It's a Sin by Russell T. Davies. So we will have an AIAV Club episode about it at some point in the future, once we get through the episodes. But look, I... I was somewhat offended, but I had, was optimistic that there'd be an explanation later. I think that was more, more what it was. It was just the idea that I was hoping that if the writing was good enough, it would eventually come out that there was a logical explanation for it. Yeah, I wasn't that optimistic because they were kind of side characters who I felt like made every dimension again. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll find out and we'll report back to you. Yes. Uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised by the explanation. Yeah. So another topic that kind of relates to this, and this is kind of an Australian thing, so I'm sorry if you're not in Australia. So the NDIS is our National Disability Insurance Scheme. So the idea is that people with a disability are able to apply for a plan, which will include money for them to get therapies and stuff. So this is, this is the plan that we use to assist our children. So even though Paul has a diagnosis, he doesn't have an NDIS because he's functioning quite well. Um, so one of the things about the NDIS at the moment is that there's some talk about cutting the cost of the NDIS because it's costing more than they originally expected. Now, I guess the question here is, what is the purpose of the NDIS? Is it to spend a certain amount of money to make disabled people's lives slightly better? Or is it to spend the money needed to make disabled people's lives better? So my philosophy, and I think the philosophy of the people who, you know, advocated for the NDIS to be created is that it should be whatever amount of money it needs to be. So there shouldn't be an idea that when you get to a certain point, you have to like cut off anyone else or cut everyone's services. So do you have any thoughts about the philosophy of the NDIS? Yeah, so there's this metaphor that one of my mentors uses a lot, which is if three kids of different heights needs to look over a fence, they all need different sized boxes in order to achieve the same goal. 
And that's exactly what the NDIS, NDIS is meant to be doing, recognising that people with a disability have limitations in varying areas, depending on the level of disability. And the point is, we should give them a bigger box, because that's what they need in order to get there. Um, so everyone needs some assistance to some degree, sure. You know, whether your difficulties are emotional, social, financial, um, housing, whatever it is. But the point of having disabilities is that often you have um, issues across all those domains. So... Should it necessarily be a finite amount? Well, no, because the problem is is that then the needs of the individual will vary, and the amount they need in order to have a uh, a decent quality of life, decent occupation, decent housing, you know, decent care, is it needs money, and that's that's just kind of the basics of it. The NDIS has made things difficult for some people, but actually improved the lives of a lot of people. I think where the NDIS might have blown out a little bit may not necessarily be in um, in the amount of money spent, but the breadth of what they were willing to accept. So early on, the NDIS made it very clear and continues to try to make it clear that any services that can be paid for through Medicare, uh, so that's um, specialist appointments and, and the, the point of contention is typically psychotherapy. Anything that can be pay, paid through Medicare should be paid through Medicare. Uh, but what the NDIS has gradually been recognising is the impact of mental health on someone's functioning and well-being. And that's that's absolutely astute. So, you know, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, all of it will affect your day-to-day function. It'll affect your ability to find housing, you know, pay rent, uh, cook a meal, go out to the grocery store. Like, all these things are affected by mental health. And I think the NDIS very early on was very rigid. It was very much like, no... We do not consider mental health a disability, um, you know, we, that, that doesn't count. But they've gradually been opening it up more and more because, stupidly, the government took away money from mental health services to pay for the NDIS. So, essentially, they created their own problem, right? So, so I think the role and value of the NDIS is certainly there. Should it be finite amounts of, you know, financial distribution? No, because then we end up being Americans. Like we have an American health system where it's like, oh, sorry, you can't afford to have the treatment that you need, but you can have this lesser treatment and, you know, it has more side effects and it might not work as well, but it's within your plan. And that just, it's not healthcare. That's, what is the term? That thing where healthcare is, like, based on money. There's a term for it. Like, class-based healthcare or something along okay. those, those lines. I've seen it mentioned somewhere in Grey's Anatomy and somewhere else. Like, I can't remember. Yeah. But it just... It's not something that we should be aiming for. And I get that economically it might be practical. But this is the point. Is that not everyone needs the same amount of help. Yeah. What do you think about the argument that people who are better able to advocate get more money? I think that is definitely true. In my experience, when you have um, an advocate representing you, and uh, look, uh, I, as most of you would know, I work in the field of um, intellectual disability, so adults with ID. So often they aren't able to advocate for themselves. So they often have someone else representing them, usually a family member, but sometimes, say, a support co- NDI support coordinator or something. In my experience, the ones who are more persistent uh, and the ones who, um, you know, invest the time and really push for services usually do get more, which, you know, is classic squeaky wheel gets the oil kind of stuff. Uh, in a way, 
it's a good it's a good thing that they are able to get more services, but at the same time, should you have to sort of rise up and rampage and you know you know um, pick at the the NDIS office to get the you know basic services or the services that you know multiple medical professionals agree that the person needs? No, but it is kind of the way our society works in general. The loudest people usually get the most change. Yeah, because the, the original funding the boys was on before the NDIS came in, my understanding was just that once you got the diagnosis, you got the money. And it was the same amount of money for everyone. Yeah. So basically, it's like, we trust the pediatrician to make the diagnosis. And then if the pediatrician agrees that you have this, here's your money. Whereas the NDIS, I guess there is more advocating and also who you who you get as your planner might affect it, whether they're good at advocating for you to the next level up or whether they're terrible or whether they understand your disability. Um, so I remember when we started the NDIS, I was like, what's what's wrong with the system where a doctor makes this call? Well, no, because it's a need-based system, which actually, in my opinion, does make sense. But the problem there is that people don't necessarily know how to communicate what needs are present, right? Mm-hmm. So the the flaw in the original autism system, or what you call the HECWA funding, which I, yeah. I actually I think still exists to some degree, um, but I thought it had been pulled into NDIS. I don't know if that's happened yet. I because I, oh, I, okay. I vaguely remember someone getting it for, like in the last few years, and I thought that's a bit odd because NDIS mm-hmm. has been around for like eight years. Yeah. Um, but anyway, not the point. Uh, so the flaw in that is that again, it assumes that everyone needs the exact same amount of money. Right, so I, I can't remember what the amount it was like ten thousand or fifteen thousand or something, wasn't it? I think it was like um fourteen thousand, but it was kind of like it had to be used by a certain age, which means if you diagnose it to you, it had to last you like like till seven, so it was like five years. But if you're diagnosed at five, yeah, you use it, you in, two use years. it in two years. So, so the thing is that. As we've said in previous episodes, um, when you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. So Matt and Jake's level of need and the amount of intervention they required through OT and speech therapy is not necessarily the same as another child who might have comorbid intellectual disability. Yeah. So that funding could for us was quite quite good, mm-hmm. but it might be woefully inadequate for someone else, right? Yeah, but in theory, if you had intellectual disability, you were meant to get another set of funding as well. Oh, okay. I wasn't. I wasn't aware that there was a distinctive. Yeah, because there's idea. the funding like through the school. Like the school had to apply for the funding. Because I know that some people who had a diagnosis of ASD and then got a diagnosis of ID later had to get like a second pool of money. But I think the ID one at that age is generally given to the school to use to do what exactly Just for to... aids, like in classrooms and um, social skills, like. Because there's the in-school funding versus the NDIS. So the kids who have like the in-school funding at the school get social skills classes in the school. Like at the boys' school, this is just an example. Whereas kids like Matt and Jake who have external NDIS funding, it was unclear whether they could also be in those classes. Yeah, but again, that still adds in a middleman of expecting the school to provide the services and reach out for the services. Oh yeah, and the parents had to, like the parents and the principal had to do a lot of work and it was very hard. I'm not saying it was easy or anything. Yeah. I'm just saying that, yeah, it's it's not, like, if you have two things, if the system's working, 
you have two pools. Yeah, but even even then, though, again, I the your level of ID can vary, and yeah. the the skills and deficiencies that a person with an ID might have will also vary. Mm-hmm. So having a flat amount of funding doesn't make any sense. So NDIS, in a way, does make sense because it's needs based. The mm-hmm. problem is that. Um, health understanding someone's health and functional needs is a very nuanced field. Mm-hmm. And when you have people who are admin based, um, because you do, some people have some health experience, rarely do you get nurses, but even then, you know, if you have a nurse, uh, who does, who might be your NDIA planner, they may have never worked with kids. They may never work mm-hmm. with disability. They have some health knowledge, sure, but they might have worked in ICU for eight years, you know? Yeah. Like, so just because you have some health background doesn't give you an understanding about the day-to-day challenges of having a disability. Yeah. Or, or even if they've worked with people in wheelchairs. Yes. And they get sent out to do a plan for someone with ASD. Yeah. Completely different. Yeah. And, and the thing is that the system inherently tries to... Uh, level the playing field, as it were, by putting together... Well, I, I don't remember how many items it is. It's probably a few hundred items of checkboxes. Like, do you have this? Do you need this? Do you use a wheelchair? Do you need incontinence aids? To try and establish what the needs are. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is that for someone who doesn't have the health experience, they don't necessarily see all the ways in which they meet needs. So yeah. the, the classic story is the elderly parent looking after an adult child with intellectual disability, right? Right? So they've been doing it their whole lives. They're just used to it. It's part of them. They know how to adapt and adjust and work around the person. But then they go. But then no one knows what roles need to be filled, what needs need to be met. And so, um, you know, if... Or let's say they try to do the planning. They just don't necessarily know what it is they do. Like, they don't... Under- yeah. they, don't they can't articulate the individual ways in which they help. And if you actually had to itemize it, it would be extensive, most likely, you know... Mm-hmm. Toileting, bathing, dressing, uh, you know, handling money, uh, transport. Like, there are all these things that once that person is gone, the responsibility has to go somewhere. Yeah. And so it might be going to, uh, like, a team of people or it might go to an individual or whatever. But these are the questions that don't necessarily get contemplated by the person passing on care. Yeah. An example I heard, like, of the tick box thing was there's a tick box for being able to use buses. But someone with an intellectual disability might be better use a specific bus. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they can use buses. Yeah. Or someone with autism, if given the right instructions, knows the routine and the schedule of a bus and a train well. But if you ask them to go to a brand new place with no preparation, they might experience significant anxiety. They may not be able to organize their thoughts. Yeah. Or their bus gets cancelled. Or their bus... They catch the exact same bus at the exact same time every day. Yep. So how to deal with a change in routine. They may not be able to adapt appropriately. They might have a meltdown. Mm. So these questions are... Uh, like, in a way, reflect something. Like, it is useful to know that they are capable of taking a bus. But what does that even mean, necessarily, mm-hmm. right? Do they know how to top up a mic key? Do they know what to do if they miss their bus stop? Do they know what to do if someone else, uh, you know, confronts them on a bus? Like, yeah. there are there are more skills as part of taking a bus than simply just 
can you take a bus? Like, it's not mm. quite that simple. And so, again, if you're not someone who's trained in thinking that way, if you don't already know how to break it down into its individual elements, um, like, say, an occupational therapist or behavior support practitioner might already know, then you're going to overlook things. You'll either underestimate someone's needs or you might overestimate someone's needs. Um, and, and let's be honest, you know, if someone who was on a plan got more money than they necessarily needed to use, they're not going to reject it. <laughs> like, they'll most likely yeah. just go, all right, well, we'll save it just in case. And anecdotally, a lot of people don't finish their plan. So the money just goes back into the pool at the end of the year. Yeah. So, look, again, I don't know the economics of it, but I I do know that it is better to have the money than not because you just never know what someone's going to go through and what kind of issues they're going to have. And certainly, like, I would argue we're still in the beginning stages of the NDIS. We're still in that kind of establishment stage. I know for a lot of my patients, I recommend for a lot of them to have allied health input. So physios, OTs, uh, speech pathologists, behavior support practitioners. Because, But the thing is, is that once they've done their work and they've established good routines and they've trained the care as well, they don't need to be there forever. Yeah. Right? Eventually, they can back off. They might have to come back in again every now and then, depending on what the issues are that arise. But ultimately, you know, it's about testing, assessing someone's function, assessing someone's communication, uh, or whatever it may be, and then implementing that. And I think this is this is one of the, the things that I find in my line of work particularly. I think a lot of carers kind of just depend on the clinician to do all the work. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like um, if... It, uh, you know, if for our kids, for Jake and Matt, if the, the OT is saying, okay, this is what you need to do to reinforce this behavior every day. And then we just didn't bother doing it. Like, we just kind of went, eh, the once a fortnight session will do, it's all good. Well, whereas the point is, anything we learn, for any of us, no matter whether we have a disability or not, we learn through repetition and reinforcement. Yeah. And so then there's often complaints from the carers, like, why is this person getting any better? And I'm like, did you do anything that the allied health specialist told you to do? They're like, no. I'm like, well, then that's your problem, isn't it? So, it, you know, in part, it's not just the, it's the whole intent of intervention is to try and help the person build these skills or to at least build the skills of the people around them. And then the need goes down. So the amount of expenditure that the person should incur should go down as the time goes on. Yes. And there's also, if you can help someone to the point where they can enter the workforce, then you're actually getting tax dollars back. Yeah. I mean, look, again, it's very different with kids because yes. kids kids evolve and they change and their needs change. So that I get. If, you, if you're starting a kid on the NDIS, you're committing to them being on the NDIS probably till they're 18 because mm-hmm. you, just, you just don't know what's going to happen to them over those years as they grow and mature and as they go through puberty. Um, but certainly in my, in my field, in the adult field, theoretically, theoretically, the needs and the amount of money spent for on interventions should go down after the first few years if it's being done right and executed properly. Yeah. I think, I think with the kids, you can't solve everything in one year. Like, no matter how much money they throw at you. Yeah. You can't just do everything an ASD kid needs in one year. Like, they'd have no life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is why, again, the old funding of, you know, you get money until you're seven was incredibly arbitrary because it... Well, it was early sense. intervention, so... Yeah. Had to cut off at some stage. Yes. but it, it, I think the idea was there was other programs. For us, it ended up being the NDIS, but there might have been other things. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And we'll end it there. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. Don't forget to share, comment, let other people know that we exist. That would be really nice of you. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.